This is a submedia production. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Submedia's new Circle A podcast. I'm your host, JR. In this episode, we're going to dig into our archives for an interview from Trouble Number 20, the episode titled Inside Out Against Prison Society. If you haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. The link is in the show description. It's full of inspiring interviews with people who have gone through or are still going through the violence of prison, as well as those who are organizing to end its existence. For this episode, we're going to focus on the full in-depth conversation with L. Jones, a badass prison abolitionist based in Halifax. To start things off, we asked L. to explain what exactly people mean when they talk about the prison industrial complex, and to delve into some of its specific structural components inside of Canada. My name is L. Jones. I'm a community activist, a poet, and I'm also the Nancy's Chairwoman Studies at Mount St. Vincent University. The prison industrial complex is a term that was coined um, by Angela Davis and others. And it originally comes from, believe it or not, Eisenhower, who talks about the military industrial complex. And he, um, as he was leaving office, talked about the dangers of what he saw as this growing profiting from the military industries, right? So from weapons and technology. And so prison activists then repurposed that term into talking about the prison industrial complex. And what that means is essentially that there's money in prison. So um, not just the prison itself, but for example, the contracts on building prisons. Um, if you're looking in, say, Nova Scotia, a lot of prisons are built in small rural towns. So Spring Hill, for example, is actually downgraded from uh, I believe, a town to a village or however it works. And so it's those kind of places where that used to be a coal mining town. Um, they don't have industry and you get a prison there. So that would be the idea of the prison industrial complex. That um, When we invest in prisons, there's money in construction contracts. You know, you got a community college that trains people in being a correctional officer. Um, you know, you, you put money into things like... Uh, court system, sheriffs, whatever it is. So it creates a whole amount of, of money and jobs around incarcerating people and investing and punishing them. So that's the basics of the prison industrial complex. It also often implies privatization. So that's less so in Canada, but perhaps creeping in particular ways. So um, also things like private prison companies in the States, uh, Geocorp and Civic Group are two huge companies that run, for example, the ICE prisons. Um, in Canada, the layout is a little different, and that's what's challenging because... A lot of people think that the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration are things that are limited to the United States. Um, so a lot of people have watched 13th, for example, the documentary by Ava DuVernay. And, you know, they see that, but they think, okay, that's something that happens in America. And while it's true that America by far outstrips everybody in the world in incarcerating people and in black incarceration, um, Canada also has a black incarceration problem and a mass incarceration problem. We're very high up um, in terms of how much we invest in prisons and how many people we incarcerate. We're, we're like seventh to ninth in the world. Um, and in fact, we're seeing us investing in prisons at a time where even the United States is removing their investment in prisons and talking about other solutions. Um, a lot of people obviously are aware that in Canada we have 
over incarceration of Indigenous people. Over one-third, close to 40% now, of federally incarcerated women are Indigenous women in Canada. And the numbers in the youth jails, for example, in Saskatchewan, 99% of incarcerated girls are Indigenous girls. Over 50% of incarcerated youth in Canada are Indigenous. So people may be familiar with that, but Canada also has a Black incarceration problem, which is something that we see as limited to the states. So we think that anti-Blackness is an American problem. We don't actually recognize that there's black people in Canada at all. Um, part of the Canadian myth is this myth of the Underground Railroad, the myth of Canada as a place that was a haven for black people. We didn't have slavery, which isn't true, of course. We did have enslavement. The idea that we didn't have to have a civil rights movement, that didn't happen here. We did have a civil rights movement. Um, so these myths around Canadian history and particularly around uh, Canada's history with black people really influence how we think about incarceration here. Um, in Nova Scotia, where I'm speaking to you from, 2% uh, of the population is black, 14% uh, of the adult prisons and 16% of the youth prisons are black. And federally in this region, 11.4% of federally incarcerated people are black. So you can see that those numbers are wildly disproportionate. And in fact, we have far more disproportionate numbers relevant to population than the United States has. So um, when we look at that landscape in Canada, it's, it's very clear that, you know, we are not immune from these issues. We also see, for example, immigration issues. I think that's something that people don't identify talk about. A lot of people, when you talk about immigration, incarceration, um, imagine some kind of shelter, right? When you talk about immigration detention, people think, okay, there's like, what, is that a dorm room? And of course, it's jail. Uh, people are incarcerated in provincial prisons and in um, correctional, so-called correctional facilities. And in Canada, we have indefinite incarceration for immigration, meaning that um, you can be held forever. So we have people being held over eight years. We have multiple deaths in immigration custody, many of which we don't even know the names or the numbers because it's not tracked. Um, so that's a particular issue in Canada. So when people are looking across the border and saying, oh, Trump is incarcerating children and putting kids in cages, we actually do the same thing. We have children in immigration detention as well. So those are some of the, I suppose, the, the surface main issues in Canada. As we just heard, many Canadians enjoy critiquing the institutions and policies of our southern neighbour without recognizing or acknowledging the parallels that exist here. Another stark example of this hypocrisy is in Canadian claims of being a welcoming country, touting a mediocre record of Syrian refugee relocations, as well as some baseless sloganeering by the country's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. With immigration detention in Canada, a lot of people remember that in response to Trump's Muslim ban, um, Trudeau had made a tweet that said, you know, refugees are welcome here or whatever, we are a welcoming country. Um, when we were taking in Syrian families, of course, that was very much touted in this way that we were this beacon of, you know, the Western world, that Canada was doing things the right way. And you saw, there was actually an article, for example, in the New York Times that talked about how Canada is the last bastion of the kind of liberal West, where everyone else is going right wing. And of course, when we talk about why there was such an investment in a particular narrative around Syrian refugees, where there was this particular outpouring that got all this attention, um, that wasn't so much about Syrian refugees, that was about exactly this kind of mythology of Canada. So the same mythology of Canada that has us promote ourselves as the Underground Railroad, the destination of the Underground Railroad. We saw a very similar thing, where Canada likes to present ourselves as benevolent, as welcoming, as you know, the place where there's no racism, as the place that's multicultural, the place that doesn't have these kind of problems. So um, that Syrian narrative fit into this 
uh, narrative of ourselves. But of course, the realities are very, very different in Canada. As I'm currently speaking to you, Doug Ford has cut legal aid for refugees and immigrants. Um, we know in this election, we're seeing all kinds of xenophobia, anti-Islam, um, uh, like Islamophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia. Um, we're seeing all kinds of uh, anti-refugee and immigrant sentiment. Um, there was a poll done recently that showed two-thirds, over two-thirds of Canadians oppose you know, migrants. I think there's too many migrants in Canada. Um, they recently did a poll about specifically whether people thought there were too many non-white immigrants and uh, the numbers vary between parties, but you know, you, you had people specifically saying, yeah, like the problem is brown immigrants. So um, obviously ideologically in Canada, this certainly isn't in practice, this idea that we're just this multicultural welcoming country. And we never have been. Um, in Policing Black Lives, Robin Maynard talks, for example, about how Canada um, had policies to deliberately block black migration. Um, that Canada's idea was essentially that the United States has a problem with race and we won't have this problem because we won't let black people in. So if we don't have black people, then we can't have a problem with blackness. Um, we, of course, know that our immigration laws were extremely restrictive up to the 60s and remain some of the most restrictive laws in the world. Um, so the Canadian impression is that we sort of freely let in all these people. And the reality is we're very, very low down on the list for how many refugees we accept. And we have extremely difficult immigration laws. Um, and of course, coupled to that, we have um, the issues of immigration detention. So if you are deemed to be illegal, so moving your body from one place to another, which makes you illegal, um, you can be, you are incarcerated. So immigration detention, as I said, it's not a shelter. It's not a dorm room. It is jail. It is no different from being incarcerated in any other situation. Um, you could be held there indefinitely. The conditions are in the exact same conditions as any other jail. So in uh, Nova Scotia, people are held in Burnside, which is a provincial facility. So that's also where the remand is. Um, and anybody sentenced to under two years. So some of the conditions I've encountered, for example, there's a Hindu man currently in Burnside, and he's a vegetarian. But because they don't have a vegetarian menu, they've essentially, for over a year, been feeding him peanut butter, um, bread, peanut butter, stuff like that. Um, and he actually ended up with, with problems with his bones. So he, he ended up in a wheelchair for a brief period of time because his spine was actually damaged from the lack of nutrition. Um, because he was essentially not being fed anything because they simply didn't have a menu. Um, we've obviously seen people come in, um, there's immense Islamophobia, both from staff and sometimes from other prisoners. So people are brought in in situations where they don't speak English, they don't have access to translators. People have said they've been fed pork, um, not knowing what's on the menu. And even though they've said they need a halal menu, they've been fed pork. They're not receiving any religious rights, so not having imams come in. Um, and then, of course, you have to be able to access things like a translator, access a lawyer, and that's extremely difficult, especially if you're being you know, pulled off a container ship into immigration detention and you don't know who to call and who to reach. Um, so this incredibly stressful situation where you don't have any tools and resources. Um, what happens in that situation as well is if they believe that you're a flight risk, then they put you on this hold and basically every month you have to go and have a hearing. And that can stretch, as I said, indefinitely. So um, unlike other people. So, for example, one person who in, was in immigration detention talked to me about how, you know, you see everybody else going to court and you knew that they had a court date and you knew that for better or for worse, they would have a trial or make a deal and be sentenced. But he was there month to month with essentially just being sent back in the same situation, never receiving a hearing. And that can stretch on forever. Um, and this is, again, for people that are not considered to have committed any kind of crime. Um, another huge issue is with deporting people, particularly people that have been convicted of a criminal offense. 
So if you have six months of time and that can doesn't have to be consecutive time, it can be um, at any one point. So you could have two months and three months. So you can then be rendered eligible for deportation. It used to be two years. Harper reduced it to six months. Trudeau has not done anything to change that. Um, so, for example, a case people may be familiar with was the Abdul Abdi case. Um, Abdul Abdi was a child refugee who came to Nova Scotia, was brought to Nova Scotia as a government-sponsored refugee. Him and his sister were very quickly taken into the care of the state and made permanent wards, um, but they did not get their citizenship. So the state was in the position of being their parent, yet did not seek citizenship for him or his sister. Um, his aunt, who is really his mother, um, she attempted when she was eligible for citizenship to put children on her form and they took them off. Um, they said that she couldn't because she wasn't in a guardianship relationship. Abdul was moved to 31 homes by the age of 18, 19. Um, there was abuse in these homes. He only received a grade six education. Um, he was in immediate contact with the youth criminal justice system. Um, so all of these systems that are anti-black, the education system, the youth system, the immigration system, the criminal system, all work together. And when he became an adult, he experienced what is very common in over 50% of cases for kids that have been in the child welfare system. And he experienced crossover and became criminalized. And that made him eligible for deportation. And they attempted to deport him. And this is where we stepped in to stop that based on his human rights, uh, that this was a violation of his rights as a minor and a violation of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, but that's just one example of the kind of issues that you see in the system that I don't like this word vulnerable, but the people that we call the most vulnerable people, I would say the most oppressed people, um, get punished twice. You get incarcerated and then you get sent into immigration detention, sometimes indefinitely if you come from a country that you know, won't accept you back or, or that is too dangerous to transport to. Um, we also have seen cases where people have died. Um, their families haven't got their bodies back. Their families have had to pay for their bodies back. They can't get any information about what's happening. Um, it's really, I would say, a kangaroo court in terms of the ability to get any kind of decent hearing. Um, there's really, you know, just checking the box. It's a war agent that makes the decision. So there's all kinds of issues that I could go on forever and ever and ever about, about the kinds of injustice in the immigration system. But those are some examples. As anarchists, it is important that our analysis goes beyond simply pointing out the shortcomings of the immigration and refugee system as it currently exists. As though some kind of alternative system with an accessible judicial process and comfortable detention accommodations would somehow be acceptable. In a country founded by ongoing colonial violence and attempted genocide of indigenous people, it's especially intolerable for a government body or any authority to dictate which people get to move freely and which are criminalized simply for being. I think what we have to understand is ideologically this idea, which is encapsulated in the no one is illegal name, is the very fundamental idea that if somebody crosses a random border, that they become illegal. And this has been this huge debate around calling people aliens or illegals or, you know, that the person actually in their body becomes illegal and what that actually means, right? So um, the very idea that someone's body can be criminalized just for where they move in space or where they are in geography underlies obviously a lot of this kind of legislation. So whether that's the idea that if somebody comes to Nova Scotia in an illegal way, we can put them in a jail and leave them there. Or if it's the idea that if somebody's, you know, not one of us in this particular way that we give status or citizenship, um, then they can be deported and sent back to a dangerous place. And if they die there, oh, well, it's not our responsibility. And also this connection of at the same time, we need these workers. So we're going to bring them, but bring them in these conditions that are incredibly um, violating, incredibly exploitive and um, really, you know, are all about 
treating these bodies as second class. So Nova Scotia, for example, we have a lot of migrant workers in the agricultural industry on our farms. A lot of workers are brought in from Jamaica on our apple farms or blueberry farms, which couldn't work without them. Um, and so when you come, you're in a living situation where your employer controls your living situation. Um, they control your papers. Uh, you can be sent back at any time. They provide things like your healthcare that you don't have any access to. Um, you don't have access to basic education. Any of the things that we have with status, you don't have. And they were at the complete mercy of their employees. So, to employers. So, it's essentially an enslavement situation that we can think of. Um, they literally hold your papers. People have said that, of course, if you complain, if there's a dispute, um, then you get shipped back to on a plane the next day. So you have absolutely no rights as a worker. So, of course, not only does this violate the rights of people usually coming from the global south, usually brown and black people that are being placed into this situation so that we can get our blueberries for cheaper, so that we're not paying workers. Of course, it also means that we're not paying people as they should be paid and affects all of us in that sense as well, that the entire farm industry runs on this kind of labor. So they're not paying, you know, $15 an hour to laborers to do this work. They're uh, paying people that, you know, they can then house it, you know, 15 to a room with, with no benefits or anything. Um, but the through line through all of this is, again, that, you know, these are settler colonial countries. These are countries that are based upon theft of indigenous land, the stolen labor of black people, um, keeping out the ability of people from the rest of the country who have consistently given us industry. So we are consistently involved either in military expeditions in the countries that then refugees come from or exploiting their minerals. So, you know, we're off in Latin America with our mining companies. You know, we are investing in all these countries. You have sweatshops. You have all these different ways that we benefit economically from these countries and then are, of course, involved in the conflict that takes place in these countries that causes refugees to come. And then we treat ourselves as though we're benevolent and offering a place of welcome when it's, in fact, our activities through destroying the environment, through mining, through exploiting people, through causing harm, through causing violence that has created these conditions. And we as a, you know, part of the first world have been throughout history responsible for creating whatever we call it, the third world, the developing world, the black and brown world, the global south, all of which is impoverished on purpose by the extraction of people and resources by the, the West or white countries or whatever you want to call them, settler European countries. Um, so that line is, is the same line. Um, the same people that we incarcerate for being here illegally are also the same people whose bodies we exploit to make sure they don't have any rights. And this is all about whose body is considered to be a human body, who's considered to be a, a citizen, who's considered to be a real Canadian, who's considered to have um, humanity and who's not. Sometimes the massive injustices of today's intertwining carceral systems can seem inevitable and beyond comprehension. But it's important to remember that these systems are rooted in a specific historical context, shaped by the choices of those in power, and they continue to function to this day because of the ongoing decisions and actions of those in power. Understanding the origins of these systems can be a good first step in seeking their destruction. I think when we go back to looking at the roots of where prisons come from, um, 13th, for example, really, uh, I think, elaborates on this well. So, for example, um, with enslavement, black bodies are controlled under slavery. Um, it's at the end of slavery that we see a particular rhetoric around policing, right? So around the idea that um, black bodies that are not disciplined by the system are going to go out there and rape 
white woman, so they have to be controlled in this particular way. And that has been rehearsed in books like the, the New Jim Crow about how new laws around vagrancy um, were put in in order to essentially re-enslave people and put them back on, on chain gangs. So there's a long history of the ways that incarceration has been used to control particular bodies. Obviously, in Canada, we can look at a similarity between, obviously, the reserve system, so the removal of Indigenous people from their territories and homes into residential schools, in, onto reserves, and that is a collection, a disciplining, and a controlling of bodies. So um, the past system where you had to have a pass to, to leave reserves. Um, the fact that, for example, there were laws that if you were seen drunk off a reserve, you could be charged and criminalized. Um, so all the ways that Indigenous movement was controlled, which is tied to a policing system, a surveillance system, and a prison system. Um, so we can look at all those routes, particularly within residential schools. And a lot of people call Canada's prisons the new residential schools because we see the shift of controlling um, Indigenous people within residential schools to now being controlled in this new institution within jail. So just a shift of, of grounds. And um, we know Indigenous people were st sterilized, Indigenous women were sterilized in Canada for long periods of time and in, well into the 1970s, another form of controlling bodies. So the prison is about controlling and disciplining uh, bodies. It's about, I would say, what we might call a soft genocide, right? So once, for example, black people become um, not as useful as agricultural labor because we start mechanizing and, and modernizing, you don't need that, you know, beast, and I'm using that in quotes, field labor of just a, a raw body, then black people become surplus in particular ways. So how do you get rid of, of those bodies? Well, if you put them inside a prison, they're no longer competing on the job market and you can actually get free labor out of them, right? So this idea that it's really about removing particular people from society. When we have in Halifax, you know, over one third of black men who have been charged with a crime that have a criminal record or have been criminalized, that means that those people aren't on the job market, they can't get housing, they can't access resources. You have whole communities being impoverished as a result. Um, and then that, of course, leads us into prisons and jails. But that's about the ability to police and survey and control our communities. Um, again, a lot of people associate this with the United States. So a lot of people, for example, think that enslavement was exclusive the United States, so that this didn't happen here. And of course, in Nova Scotia, we had slavery and indentured labor. Um, so re-enslaving, essentially, people that had come here had won their freedom and then were more or less sold back into indentitude. Um, you know, in Montreal, Montreal was burned down by Angelique, old Montreal, um, an enslaved black woman. So we can look at all kinds of histories of enslavement in this country. And beyond that, all kinds of laws that were and have been passed in order to monitor and regulate black bodies and indigenous bodies. And then that, of course, plays into the, the prison system. Um, so when we look at a system that um, overwhelmingly is incarcerating Indigenous women and girls, so as I said, over one third of federal prison population now is Indigenous women. Um, youth facilities are overwhelmingly filled with, filled with Indigenous girls. Um, as Howard Sapers, the former correctional investigator, said, I do believe that there's a crime wave in this country being committed by Indigenous women and girls and their accomplices of Black men or something else is going on. So we see that uh, your race, your poverty, your history of colonialization, um, mental illness, um, disability, these are all things that intersect with the prison system and it becomes the place where we put those people that we don't think of as hardy, equal, useful citizens and, and so we dump them in a prison. The proponents of prisons will often characterize abolitionists as naive bleeding hearts who don't acknowledge individual responsibility or the potential for someone to hurt others. 
In reality, many of us are personally rooted in families and communities that have been shaped by violence and trauma. We have received harm and sometimes caused it. We've watched our loved ones be changed by incarceration and perhaps experienced such institutionalization firsthand. To survive prison, we are often forced to become the worst versions of ourselves. Living through this allows us to know inside our very bones that prison does so much more violence than it alleviates. It is a fundamental component of the structural and systemic violence that lands on us according to race, gender, and class, all of which preserves the status quo for those who profit from it. So particularly when we look at the incarceration of women, you can really tie the rising rates of incarceration of women to austerity politics. So as we see the social safety net cut through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you see this incredible rise in the incarceration of women that's directly tied to this loss of social services. Um, in Canada, when we had Kingston Prison for Women, we used to have one federal prison for women, and there was never more than 40 women incarcerated federally while we had uh, Kingston Prison for Women. That prison shuts down in the 90s, Partially, it was already going to be shut down, but accelerated by um, the scandal, which is where women in Kingston Prison for Women are strip searched by a male riot assault team. So the women are in solitary confinement and the riot squad comes in and cuts their clothes off and leaves them naked on the floor. And this becomes publicized and it's quite a public outcry that leads to the Arbor Inquiry. And so as a result of this, there's a review of what's happening in women's prisons, and we get the regional prisons. So instead of having one central prison, we're going to have five prisons plus the healing lodge. And what have we seen as a result now? There's over 800 federally incarcerated women. So as we built these prisons, they found the women to fill. We went from 40 women to over 800 women. And women are the fastest growing globally and in Canada population of incarcerated people. And when we look at which women are being incarcerated, it's women with disabilities, it's women with uh, mental health struggles, it's women um, often with some cognitive difficulties. So um, a lot of people who work with incarcerated women will talk about how a lot of women have like brain damage from being abused and being thrown against walls. And this is the kind of thing that gets you to intersect with the prison system. And of course, huge histories of trauma. So the statistic you'll get is somewhere between 80 and 90, over 90%, 92% sometimes you get of women who are incarcerated the victims of either physical or sexual trauma. In my experience, I've never really met a woman incarcerated that hasn't been a victim of um, some kind of, of trauma in her life. And there's more and more research showing something which we also knew in working with men, which is that huge numbers of men are also victims of trauma. So for a long time, we knew that, you know, 90 plus percent of women are victims of sexual and physical abuse. But now more and more evidence has come out to show men are similarly abused. So over 50 percent of um, incarcerated people we know now are victims of trauma. And that's, um, I would say, lowballing it. As I talk to men, a lot of men reveal things like childhood molestation. A lot of men were harmed inside institutions in this province. So um, molested and harmed inside like the group homes and youth care and um, juvenile justice facilities in this province, for example. Um, so we're learning more and more, I think, about how men respond to that kind of trauma. So we know that what we're doing isn't incarcerating people to keep our community safe. You know, we're not incarcerating whatever you think when you watch TV. I think people listen to the news and they watch TV and they imagine that everybody in prison is like a serial killer from criminal minds. And so we need prisons because how else would we kept safe? And of course, the vast, vast majority of people in prison are there for nonviolent crimes, crimes of addiction, crimes of poverty. But even those who are committing violence, I don't like to make that division because often we say that. We say, oh, well, these people are nonviolent, so they shouldn't have these things happen to them. But then the implication is, well, if you're violent, if you've committed this violent offense, if you're labeled violent, then I guess what happens to you, then it's okay. And 
Of course, many people that have committed acts of harm and violence have often been harmed themselves. So a prison system isn't the response to a culture that harms children, that abuses people, that um, puts children into child welfare, that leaves people without any supports and any options, that puts money into prisons instead of into treatment. In this province, we recently, um, I keep saying in this province, in this province, we recently uh, had a, a major reconstruction of the Burnside prison um, in Halifax. That was over $7 million. They're building a new jail in Cape Breton for hundreds of millions of dollars. Newfoundland in response to having multiple deaths. So I believe like four men died in custody and like four women died in custody at the same time within a year. And so the response to that is to build a new jail, uh, you know, a more state-of-the-art jail, as they put it, not to build treatment beds, not to invest in employment programs, not to make sure that people have access to mental health care, but to build a jail with twice the capacity of beds. And we know what's going to happen is when they have those beds, they will fill them. Just as we saw with women, once we had the spaces in prison, we filled them. So um, this goes back to what the prison industrial complex is. The belief is that there's crime and that jails become overcrowded, and so we need to build new prisons as a result. The reality is that we build new prisons and we find the people to fill them. And increasingly, the people filling them are people with disabilities and mental health problems. This is the largest warehousing of people with mental health problems in this country. And instead of investing in treating them at a fraction of the amount, we pour all this money into punishing people. In terms of recidivism, um, we know that what we're doing in prisons doesn't work in prisons and jails. Um, that's not just coming from me or coming from prisoners. You can very clearly see in things like the Auto General's report in Nova Scotia that has repeatedly reported that the staff don't even have mental health training um, in Burnside. They haven't had programs. That was one of the subjects of the prison strike. One of the demands was simply to have programs that would help them reintegrate into society. So educational programs, mental health treatment, um, uh, employment skills, you know, writing their resumes, financial management. They wanted skills in relationships and they're not receiving that. At the same time, it costs $6,000 a month to keep somebody in Burnside. So the question has to be, like, what are we pouring all this money into if we don't have mental health care, we don't have programming, we can't even seem to get people shoes or towels or mattresses, we don't have healthy food, you know, there's nothing happening there, yet it's costing $6,000 a month. And this is one of the things that the prisoners asked in the prison strike, that, you know, what is happening to rehabilitate us? And we know that the jails aren't rehabilitating people, and they really don't have a purpose to rehabilitate people, and there's no political will to do it. So it's something that people pay lip service to. But in actuality, that kind of um, practical move is not even about rights. It's simply about somebody's going to get out and be in your community and you probably want them to address some of their issues. But um, of course, that's seen as being soft on crime. So there's there's no investment in that. We are much more willing to invest in prisons than we are to invest in treatment. Um, so we are actually doing this, this very, I often say that you know, if you're actually conservative, the least conservative thing you can do is to invest in jails and invest in punishment, invest in prisons, because every evidence shows that they're completely not doing, they don't prevent crime, they don't help people when they get there, and they cost huge amounts of money, which isn't transparent and which isn't accountable. So nobody has any idea what's happening inside the jail. Um, people have no idea what's available, what's happening, how they're spending the money, what happens when they have a construction, you know, what are the programs look like? We don't know these things. It's completely kept hidden from us. We never set foot inside there unless you have a family member. There's no reporting on what happens. We have to rely upon jail officials that obviously have a vested interest in not telling us the truth. And people believe that because those people who are in there are criminalized, that therefore they're liars, they can't be trusted, and they deserve whatever happens to them. So once you are given this label criminal, 
you're dehumanized and there's a sense of you just deserve it. So when people say, you know, this is what happens in solitary confinement, it's torture, you experience hallucinations, you self-harm, you find yourself smearing your blood on the wall, you're walking through doors and, you know, like you're, you feel an uncontrollable rage. The response to that is, well, you know, don't go to prison if you don't want to do those things. And so we have a very vindictive and cruel and dehumanizing attitude towards people that we've labeled as, as criminal. And so once somebody's labeled that way, why should we invest money in them? Why should we care what happens to them? And this is always the problem with talking about prisoner rights and talking about jails, because people aren't actually trying to have a conversation about what works and what rehabilitates people and what's good for communities. Really, it is just a conversation about punishing people who are powerless and who we want to take out this kind of very primal and vindictive revenge upon. Um, you often see this, for example, um, sometimes in our news, I'm sure in everybody's news, they'll, like, they'll post, you know, a picture of some woman who stole gas in a gas station and can the public identify her. And if you like, look at those comments, it'll be so vicious. And people don't even know this person. They don't work at the gas station, but there's just this will to punish this person in these particular ways. And that is this very, very primal instinct that underlies everything we're talking about. And that's what makes it so difficult to reasonably address these issues. So even though people will label themselves as conservative or these kind of things, when you actually say, but do you think it's conservative to be pouring this amount of money? It costs up to $300,000 to keep a woman in federal prison for a year. Do we think that's the best use of our resources? Couldn't we do something different? Um, but people don't want to have that conversation because that would mean talking about um, you know, treating somebody like a human being and not investing in this particular kind of punishment and vengeance. Despite the massive amount of coercive power leveled against them, prisoners have a long tradition of fighting back. In 2018, prisoners across the United States refused to continue working their free labor in a massive coordinated strike. Burnside Prison in Nova Scotia was one of the only Canadian institutions where inmates decided to join the strike in solidarity and to further their own goals. Forced labor was the central issue of the recent prison strike. So um, in the United States, uh, they called the prison strike and the central issue there was withdrawing this labor. Um, prisons can't run without prison labor. Every job in a prison that isn't a security job is done by prisoners. So cooking, cleaning, um, all those sort of various jobs that keep the prison running. And so prisoners recognized that they could withdraw that labor. In Nova Scotia, the prisons at Burnside joined that strike because it was a provincial jail. There wasn't as many jobs. Um, in a provincial jail, the only real jobs, the women work in the kitchen and some of the men do some range cleaning for like a couple of hours a week. But there isn't the same kind of employment. Um, but that was a fundamental principle. And yes, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that when you are incarcerating people, when you are not paying them for their labor, and in the United States, you have huge amounts of products that are produced from this. So Victoria's Secret works on prison labor. You know, phone bags are in, inside the prisons. Um, there's, you know, there's lists and lists you can go and find of products that are created by prison labor, which means, of course, similar to as we said about migrant labor, where you have a group of people that, you know, you don't have to give benefits to, they don't have any right to complain. They can't challenge your employer. They're not unionized and they're being paid, you know, pennies a day. And this, of course, is, is a captive labor force. In Canada, a lot of people, again, believe, OK, well, we don't have prison labor. And it's true we don't have it on the same scale, but that doesn't mean we don't have prison labor. In Canada, federally, we have CORCAN, Corrections Canada Shops. Um, so in Nova Institute for Women, for example, they literally have a sweatshop. It's sewing machines um, and they sew... I believe, underwear from the men's prisons, among other things. And what happens is each prison tends to have a product they make. So like Spring Hill will make cabinets, Renews will make mattresses, um, you know, and, 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 and there's like a various product. They have metal shops. They have all these things where you're making 
The scale hasn't changed since the 1980s. It goes from about $1 a day to a maximum of $6.90. I've never met anybody that makes $6.90. The average is around $2, about $28 every two weeks that you get once they take off um, what they take off. And that's an important thing to acknowledge, right? That 30% of your paycheck from this prison labor you're doing is automatically taken off the top. And that goes to, for example, pay for things like cable. Um, it goes to pay for like the vending machine outside visiting. So a lot of the things that people are like, I don't want my tax dollars to pay for that, um, are actually not paid by for your tax dollars. They're paid off prison labor, for example, cable for, for the televisions. So 30% uh, of what you make is taken off and given back to the institution, essentially for your room and board. And then what you end up with on average is usually $28 every two weeks for eight hours a day of work in a prison shop um, under Corkham. So people have worked in that Conditions have certainly black people have compared it to slave labor, sweatshop labor, and um, people have used these words themselves. Um, and you can obviously be paid as little as a dollar a day, particularly um, for people that can't work and are receiving this kind of like welfare. Um, but yeah, we've also seen in Canada, I, I suppose one of the ironies of Canada, I don't know what to call it, but there was a story on APTN a couple of years ago about how they were making indigenous crafts. So they had prisoners making crafts and then they were selling like moccasins and stuff, you know, for $150 or whatever, while having the prisoners make this at prison labor costs. But they weren't even territory specific. So they were having, you know, people make moccasins that don't even have moccasins as part of the culture, you know, um, doing this kind of like pan-indigenous art, like dream catchers or whatever, that were then being sold as authentic arts and crafts from incarcerated indigenous people. Um, and then the article, like the jail officials were saying, or the prison officials were saying that this was great because like, they would teach people their culture and this was their idea of a cultural program to um, exploit people's arts, to, to fake indigenous arts and then sell them to the public as though these were authentic indigenous arts and crafts. So um, we've seen that in Canada as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you also don't really have the option when you're engaged in prison labor these are not choices. So, for example, when you enter federal prison, you have a correctional plan. They're not going to let you out, um, certainly not before your stat date. And if you need parole, like if you're on a life sentence, in order to get out, you need to, to do these things. So it will include stuff like going to programs. And it often includes work. So you can refuse to work. But if you refuse to work, then you're not getting down to a lower security prison and you're certainly not getting out of prison. You're not getting your parole. So essentially it's coerced, right? So um, you don't really have a choice to say, I choose not to go work. Um, and even then, in the limited working conditions, black people, for example, have said that they don't get to work for Corcan. Um, they're not really chosen, so they're doing even worse jobs. So even worse jobs than the jobs making cabinets. So the Burnside prison strike arose in tandem with the prison strike in the United States. So August 21st to September 9th, those dates were chosen because of very significant prison uprisings that had taken place. In the United States, the prison strike really was a strike. Um, it was based upon withdrawing prison labor. Um, obviously, in a provincial context, in a provincial jail, there isn't as much labor, but um, Birdside wanted to join to address their conditions. So as far as we know, we were the only institution outside of the United States to join in that strike. Um, but there was also other pockets of resistance in Canada. So I know people in Edmonton, Max, for example, had expressed some solidarity. Um, and as we sort of see that ripple effect, obviously, you know, people don't have as much access to the news. So we're seeing um, effects now, you know, six months, nine months later. Um, for example, Ottawa Carlton Detention Centre um, has had um, their own acts of prison resistance inspired by um, the demands made in Birdside. So the strike arose quite spontaneously. Um, I think to talk about it, we have to rewind a little bit and talk about the Black Power Hour, which is a radio show 
um, that we do collectively with prisoners. So myself, Israel Jones, Todd McCallum, co-founded by Randy Riley, a wrongfully incarcerated African Nova Scotian man. Um, so that show was founded to essentially give um, African history, culture, political issues, and a real platform for prisoners. And it's collectively built, so meaning that they um, choose what we talk about. They have full say of what we do. It's a radio show, but we also do community initiatives. We do things like a toy drive for the families of incarcerated people at Christmas. We also do like court support, um, advocacy. We've done a collective journalism project. So we did a project around like what it's like to be in a cell when somebody's being killed beside you and dying in custody. Um, we've done a lot of projects around habeas. So there's, there's a number of things initiated by incarcerated people that BPH provides the support and the platform and the resources for. So um, during that August of 2018, one of the things we were talking about on BPH was Black August. So um, there is among Black people a suggestion that rather than Black History Month, we should in August be celebrating some kind of Black Emancipation or Black Liberation Month um, based on the number of, of historical moments of Black liberation that happened in August. Um, the Underground Railroad is founded in August, Nat Turner's Rebellion, um, the first slaves to land in um, Virginia land in August, um, a number of birthdays. Um, a number of prison uprisings. So there's a number of liberatory events. So we were speaking about these events and also speaking about the prison strike. So that was sort of one way in which this education information was able to get to incarcerated people. At the same time, the jail was undergoing a construction. So this $7 million construction, um, part of that construction was they put in body scanners. So at a million dollar cost um, to scan for contraband, but it has turned out that the they actually know how to work the scanner, so they can't read the x-rays, and they don't know the difference between, for example, like shit and contraband. Um, but as they were going through this move and like putting in the scanners and moving to a direct supervision model, they had met with the prisoners, and they said, we want this to go smoothly, so when you guys go to the new ranges, please tell us what you want. And um, people had sort of bargained with the jail, and they had said, well, if we're going through the scanners... Um, then you know we don't have contraband, so you should open up our visitor list a bit. We should be able to get more visits and not limiting our lists. Um, they were like, can we get gym equipment? Um, can we get access to the library? So these are things that have been negotiated. They went through the scanners, they went onto the new ranges, and nothing was there. Not only did they not have gym equipment, not only did they not have a library, um, in often cases the sinks didn't work, the toilets weren't flushing, um, there was really nothing there. So this is part of what motivated the prison strike, people sort of recognizing they had tried these peaceful means, they had negotiated, they had done you know what they were told, and then none of those promises were forthcoming. At the same time, the staff also was opposing the direct supervision model because they felt it wasn't being done safely. Um, so they were saying now that the ranges were combined, you, you have um, like doubling, tripling the size of the ranges. And so they were saying they couldn't hear their radios, so it wasn't safe. Um, so they were essentially refusing to work on these ranges. So if the staff doesn't want to work on the range, people can't get out. So there was a combination of events happening, and that led to the prisoners calling for the strike. And very strategically, um, they had a strategic set of demands. And I say that because if you look at the demands, they're very basic. So they didn't call for things like the abolition of prisons or the end of policing. Um, and that wasn't because they don't have a radical consciousness. It was because they were making a, a very calculated move around those demands. And they, they made the demands about really basic human rights issues. So um, having clothing that was of an appropriate size, like shoes that matched, having access to healthy food, being able to go to the gym. Um, they had demands around rehabilitation, like can we access programming? Can we get mental health care? So really, really basic stuff. Um, and I really want to emphasize that because I always imagine that in the future, somebody's going to write some kind of paper comparing the American strike to us and sort of 
So they think that it's some kind of Canadian thing that we didn't have these political demands, but that's not the case. It was a decision by the prisoners. So um, the prison strike was decided upon. Initially, there was um, sort of one range and one group of people, and as it spread through the jail, um, everybody came on side. So they really were able to organize within the jail. There was incredible discipline. Um, nobody got a level or a discipline um, within that three weeks of the strike. Everybody basically agreed to do nothing that could be possibly held against them during that time. Um, so not only to be nonviolent, but to really um, do really nothing to, to get any kind of disciplinary, which is amazing if you think of the way that the jail can hand out disciplines for like rolling your eyes or being too slow to lock up or asking a question. So that shows you the kind of level of discipline that it took. So the whole jail was involved in this. Um, obviously, there were people that were leading this and that were, you know, helping to write um, stuff together. They did their own demands. They did their manifesto. They were speaking to the media at various points. And so we were facilitating that um, both through BPH and then through um, the Halifax Examiner. We were publishing a lot of this material. Um, so the jail denied that there was even a strike. Um, and of course, they couldn't really conceive of what was happening because what they liked to happen is that people refused to lock up and then they can shut the whole jail down and say people are misbehaving and pepper spray them. And that wasn't happening because of the discipline that people had. Um, so they sort of insisted that nothing was happening. But what was happening, of course, was exactly this, that these manifestos and demands had been made and they were calling upon the public to take this role. So one of the, I think, the important things that happened in that strike was we ended up with quite a broad body of um, different organizations that supported the strike. We had like religious organizations, social work organizations. Then obviously we had like the IWW. Um, we had people in the state supporting. So we had academic supporting and then, you know, people have been formally incarcerated. So we really saw this cross section of people um, that were supporting demands of the strike. And that was partly because the demands were so basic because people were just saying, can we get healthcare? Can we get a towel? And they were really just talking about these basic human rights and illuminating these conditions that existed that a lot of people weren't aware that this was kind of what Burnside looked like. Um, in particular, we were connected with um, the uh, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee through the IWW in the United States. We were able to interview them on the radio show, for example, so the people in prison could get the updates about what was happening in the States. Um, so there was that kind of coordination as well and working with the people that were working with the strikers in the States. So there was that communication back and forth. Um, so we still don't really know the impact um, now I always knew, and I think all the prisoners knew as well, that they weren't going to respond to the demands as in just giving them what they wanted because they can't look like they bound to the prisoners. Um, so immediately what actually happened was quite a lot of repression. A lot of people got transferred to different institutions. And the jail, as I mentioned, has been on lockdown essentially ever since. Um, so they really suffered for this strike. Um, you know, they're still really dealing with those conditions and a lot of people um, paid the consequences. But... Um, they know that the strike had an effect. So OCDC, for example, Ottawa Carlton Detention Center, through the jail line, through the work of people like Suhail Bensleman, uh, CPAP Coalition, Justin Pichet, um, they've been organizing as well. And, and part of that organizing has been inspired by the Burnside Prison Strike. We've heard from prisoners in different provinces about the strike. Um, so we don't know kind of what the ripple effects of, of people being able to stand up for those rights and take that lead in organizing is, but as time unfurls, I think we're going to see more and more on that. And of course, another piece of the strike was habeas applications, and that's something that's now playing its way through the court, so challenging through the law, um, trying to press that instrument of the law further. So habeas aren't very successful, but um, some of these cases are trying to set some precedent around prison-long confinement conditions. So the work continues. I think what was really significant is this was led by prisoners, um, that we often see prison abolition work, um, prison rights work done 
from organizations and advocates and academics. And this was an instance of, of completely prisoner-led organizing. Um, and that's what makes it significant that they had such a reach and they were able to reach so much media, get so much attention from a group of people that are actually incarcerated um, with no rights and at such risk. So that I think is the most important part. To close out the interview, we asked Elle to speak directly to those of us who feel compelled to join the fight against prisons and to share some of the lessons she's learned in her years of organizing prisoner support and other abolition work. I think the most important thing I would say, whatever you're doing and whatever advocacy role, is you have to build a relationship with people inside first. Um, this is something that came up in the prison strike, where, for example, journalists wanted to report on the strike and then couldn't understand why they you know, couldn't access people in prison. Um, you have to begin with a relationship of trust and you have to build that over time. So you're not going to just sort of step in and be like, oh, prison issues, you know. Um, I find that most of the things that we've worked on have come because of that relationship. So we're just on a daily basis communicating with people inside and filling basic needs. So that may be putting money on the phone, putting money on canteens, driving up someone's mom to visit. Um, these really, really basic things. And as you sort of build that and build that relationship and build that trust, people start to understand that, you know, you are on their side. You're someone to be counted on. You're not going to go tell the crown. You're not just here for a minute. And then out of that, you're going to hear a lot of the issues. So as I said, the prison strike arose kind of spontaneously from us speaking on the radio and then getting a phone call about the conditions. Um, Abdul Abdi's case was a phone call from prison from Ashley Smith's nephew um, that, you know, called and was saying, we have to do something about this. So I would say most of, of the kind of act, actions we've done and most of the campaigns we've done have started from having that relationship and having kind of your ear to the ground and taking those calls constantly. And out of that, then you'll hear about a health issue or you'll hear about a justice issue. And then you might reach out and it might become a bigger thing. Um, a lot of times also you hear things that you can't do anything about or that someone just wants to tell you and doesn't want you to do anything about. And you have to be willing to not say those things as well, right? You have to hold people's stories with great integrity and responsibility. Um, I think for people that want to get involved, um, I mean, radio is a great one. I would say that's been such a, a huge, important organizing instrument for us because people inside obviously, like, can listen to the radio. It's one of the few things you can listen to in a provincial jail. So if you have access to a community radio station, I highly advise setting up a kind of prison radio show, something that's just explicitly directed where they can choose the music, make sure they know it's happening, and that will build a relationship. Um, jail lines, like OCDC does a jail line where they, I mean, it's expensive depending on what the phone kind of system looks like in your province, but there they advertise within the jail that they have a line and it's open, you know, in the afternoon so people can call them and that way you start building a relationship. So I think that most of prison work is about um, not being led from the top, you know, and I don't even like the word prison work. I just don't know what else to call it. Um, building friendships with people, building those relationships, listening, and then um, doing your best to kind of figure out how you can collectively meet that need. But if you're sort of um, coming in as a savior or trying to tell people what to do, or you're, you know, you're an academic and you, you, you're just now floating in to do a dissertation or a research project, that's not organizing work and that's not going to work. Um, I think also being out in the community is really important. Um, getting um, involved with people's families, um, connecting to people on the outside that are dealing with incarceration because organizing them, helping them get visits, stuff like that um, can be really important. Just taking those calls around, you know, can you help me get a lawyer? My son got beat up in the jail. Can you advise me on what to do? There's a lot of that kind of just daily work. Um, so I would say 95% of advocacy is that daily 
Am I taking the call? Am I going to court for somebody? They just want to see a face in court, so I'll go. Um, am I visiting? Am I able to bring this person clean clothes? Am I able to write this person a letter? It's that kind of stuff that really, I think, builds a meaningful relationship. Um, beyond that, I think you have to be very strategic. Um, this is a difficult area because how we advocate around prisons. So I mentioned the prison strike, there are strategic decisions made around our demands. And sometimes when you make a strategic decision, you have to sort of give up something on the other end. Um, so, you know, you make a certain amount of demands and then you have to think about what happens if we get those demands but then want more. Um, it's very difficult, obviously, when you talk about things like lots of these people are innocent because then the implication is, well, what about guilty people? Do they deserve what they get? So we make strategic decisions all the time about the way we talk about these things in public and how we try to bring the public outside and what kind of concessions and compromises we're willing to make. So I think it's having that kind of conversation with yourself and understanding what your strategies are with the group of people you're working with. And I guess the number one thing is just the integrity and ethics around organizing. Um, so we organize collectively and that's a process that is built. I wouldn't say we were always collective. Sometimes we weren't doing as much collective organizing, but as you build the relationship, you more and more learn how to kind of concede power and how to give people the resources to do their own organizing. I think that's really important. Um, that's often a long-term kind of thing that happens. We on the outside have a ton of power. We're not incarcerated. We have the privilege to walk away from this. We can at any time decide not to do it. The people on the inside can't make those decisions. They run all the risks. I can't be put in solitary confinement. They can. Um, if they want to retaliate for something I'm saying in public, they can't retaliate on me, but they can cut my number for the people I talk to. So we really have to understand um, who in this situation is paying all the consequences and risks. And we really have to have those conversations very explicitly. Be really careful around the work we're doing. Make sure we have permission around the work we're doing. Make sure we're checking in. Make sure that we're genuinely checking in and like really listening to objections and really making sure that we're, we're building that together um, because it's very, very easy otherwise to kind of take advantage of the power you have. So those, I think, are, are some of the major uh, pieces of advice I have. Um, and again, also start small. I think that a lot of people think activism starts with a big bang and it's, you know, all of a sudden it's happening in the media and it's not. It's when I started doing prison organizing stuff, it was through poetry and like doing poems over the radio or like going in and, you know, doing writing workshops and stuff. So that was kind of my path. But every piece of activism or advocacy I've done has really often started with a small thing. So just I'm available to go to court. I'm available to write a letter, those kind of things. And as you do those things, other people will see and recognize and come to you to do more work and it will build. So um, don't sort of worry about doing a big piece or that it has to be the significant piece. Just get on the ground and do what's needed. Um, so whether that's, you know, talking to a local like E. Fry, Elizabeth Fry or John Howard, whether you have an IWW and you want to organize that way, um, if you want to figure out how to write letters to people, um, you know, I, I advise the radio. There's, there's many, many ways to kind of get that contact and to work with people, mothers of incarcerated people, and then build from there. And that's where we'll leave it. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll definitely revisit prison abolition and hear firsthand from people who have been or still are incarcerated. And on that note, I'd like to make a special celebratory shout out to anarchist hacker Jeremy Hammond, who has finally been released from prison. Jeremy spent almost a decade behind bars for wreaking havoc on the private security firm Stratfor. Despite being set up by a former comrade turned FBI informant, Jeremy has remained solid to this day. Huge congratulations, Jeremy. Freedom is a must. Circle A is part of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. 
If you like this show, be sure to check out channelzeronetwork.com for a bunch more awesome content. Submedia is entirely funded by our viewers and listeners, so if you're in a position to do so, you can throw us some cash at sub.media slash donate, or pick up some of our merch at sub.media slash gear. If money's tight but you still want to support the show, consider leaving a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, as well as telling a friend or two about why you listen to Circle A. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.